Well, the pastor of a very large church was meeting with a group of the interns from the church. They were uh, paid, and he had a regular meeting with them, and they sat down around the table, and he looked at them, and he said, um, if they had ever had a day when they felt far from God, they didn't feel that God was close, or didn't feel regularly waves of joy, then it was likely that they were not Christians. And then he looked at their fallen faces and realized that they hadn't told what he, hadn't understood what he had thought was an obvious joke. But that's sometimes the message that people have given to those of us who call ourselves Christians. It's the idea that good Christians always feel close to God. And I'm going to tell you up front, it's a myth. Today we're resuming a series that we have entitled Spiritual Urban Legends. An urban legend is a myth, a belief, a story, or a bit of folklore that gets passed around as fact. And there are the spiritual equivalents of that as well. Sometimes they contain a bit of truth. They may even sound good, but in the end they fail. And the idea that good Christians always feel close to God is something that perhaps you've bumped into along the way. It was something that I heard in sermons, especially when I was younger. And the idea was that I was to maintain an intense sense of spiritual fervor. I didn't even know what the word fervor meant, but I knew that I had to find it and keep it, whatever it was. And that's the way that many have portrayed this. Now, I know that some of you are just checking Christian faith out. You wouldn't call yourselves a follower of Jesus. You're just trying to explore. Maybe you're curious but one of the things that you've thought about is, boy, Christians always talk about these sort of intense experiences. And so you've seen videos of um, very emotional people holding up their hands and having ecstatic experiences, and it frankly creeps you out. And so you've thought, do Christians just throw their brains out and go from one emotional experience to another? Now, you may be Swedish or Canadian, and so you don't do emotion, and so that really just gives you a lot of anxiety, well, let me just encourage you not to tune me out. Um, go ahead, keep your hands jammed in your pockets, um, and we're going to go ahead and talk about this. It's the, talking about the relationship between emotion and faith. So let's get into it. Last week, I mentioned that uh, one of the most formative spiritual experiences for me as a, kid, as a child was going to a summer camp in western Kansas. And it was the highlight, not just of my summer, but of the year. And I went every summer from right after sixth grade, I was almost 12 years old, all the way through high school. In fact, I went the summer after I was in high school as well. And for the first six years, every time I went, predictably, I had this incredible mountaintop spiritual experience. And I'd go back home just full of love for God, good intentions, feeling really close. And it lasted for about a month. Um, that didn't necessarily disappoint me because I knew next summer I'd go back and have another one of those experiences and that might sustain me for the year until the last time that I went to the camp. I just graduated from high school, so I couldn't go as a camper, but I went to work on the staff. And uh, that week, for some reason, everything was different. The feelings that I'd had for six straight summers didn't happen to me again. And I was disappointed and I even began to wonder if something was wrong with me. And I'm not the only person to have had an experience like that. One of those memorable personalities in the Old Testament is a man named Elijah. And he was a remarkable guy. He did some amazing things, but he had an enemy, an enemy named King Ahab. Ahab was the king of the northern nation when the nation of Israel split in two. Ahab was the king of Israel. Um, Elijah had criticized Ahab. Ahab had a thin skin like some uh, public personalities do. And uh, he got pretty angry with Elijah. He called him the troubler of Israel. So the two of them hatched a contest, a contest that has a kind of reality show vibe to it. 
fact, you could sort of call it a spiritual mixed martial arts contest. And here's the way that it worked. Elijah said, listen, I'm committed to God, and Ahab, you're committed to these other gods, and so we'll have a contest. So Elijah told Ahab to bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah to a place called Mount Carmel. They climbed up the mountain, and this was a big deal. It attracted a lot of attention. It says that thousands of others joined in to watch this contest. And so Elijah by himself, Ahab with his 850 spiritual advisors, thousands of people watching, and the basics of the contest were this. Each group was to build an altar out of stone, put wood on top of it, and then take a bull and prepare that for a sacrifice. And normally at that point, um, someone would light the wood and then the animal would be consumed. But Elijah had a different idea. He said, let's not set fire to it. Let's each of us call on our God and ask him or them to set fire on the thing. And we'll see whose God is greater. And being a generous sort, Elijah let Ahab go first. So at eight in the morning, Elijah and the 850 prophets of Baal started to call on the name of their gods. They shouted, they danced. At noon, they got a little more desperate. At that point, Elijah started to taunt them. He said, shout louder. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he's deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and needs to be awakened. But nothing happened. So then it says they got more desperate. They began to slash themselves with swords and spears, but still there was no response. And after about eight or nine hours of this, Elijah asked for some volunteers. So they built their altar out of 12 stones representing each of the tribes of Israel. Then he dug a trench around the perimeter. They arranged the wood on top, prepared the animal on top of that. And then before he did anything else, he asked them to get four large jars of water they poured the water over the top of this offering. They did that three times. And then Elijah stepped forward and prayed, the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil. So nothing was left, consumed everything, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, is, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Now that is an incredible spiritual high. I think being there that day would have left you with no other impression that God is very real and present and powerful. But almost immediately, things changed for Elijah. Now, Ahab wasn't very happy about all this. In fact, he decided to issue a death warrant, most wanted notice for Elijah, in informing anyone who came across him to kill him. So Elijah, we're told, was afraid and ran for his life. He ran for about a 24-hour period. He arrived in a desolate place. He lay down under a bush, and he prayed to God that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. So do you see what happened? In 24 hours, he went from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows. And we're told then that God sent an angel to him. The angel touched him, woke him up, and said, get up and eat. The story goes on to relate a conversation that Elijah had with God. Elijah said to God, I'm the only one left. I'm the only one still faithful to you. And it won't be long before Ahab finds me and kills me. And that's when God told him to get up and climb up a nearby mountain and then he said, go stand in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountain apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. 
And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. Now, I don't know that any of us have experienced quite the highs or even the lows that Elijah experienced in that compressed time frame. But it shows that in the midst of the highest of highs and the lowest of lows, in the wildest swings of human emotion, that one thing never changed, that God was always with Elijah. And then he says, I will, when I show up, it will not necessarily be in dramatic ways. It won't be necessarily in a powerful wind or an earthquake or in a fire. Instead, it may be in the quietest of whispers. And what we need to realize is this God is not like some kind of bad public Wi-Fi where he tunes in and out on us. It doesn't mean that we won't go through some mild mood swings because we probably will. Feelings come, feelings go, and they have little to do with how close we are to God. The problem is, again, that feelings have little to do with how close we are to God. Now, let me just make a comparison. Now, this comparison isn't perfect, but it, I think it helps. And that is that the truth is, is that all relationships go through natural ebbs and flows. It's unavoidable in every relationship, even relationships with God. Feelings are inconsistent. They come and they go. They can't always be trusted. And if we base our relationship with God on something that wavers so much, we may find ourselves feeling spiritually adrift. So in some ways, a relationship with God is like a human relationship. Now, in some ways, it's not, so I don't want to carry this comparison all the way out. But one of the ways in which it can be like a human relationship is that often the intense emotions we feel early in a relationship, early in your relationship, maybe in a dating relationship, um, and also in a relationship with God may be very intense at the beginning but may fade over time. You see that with teenagers. They have a crush one day, and the next day they can't stand to be in the same room with that person. And that's the way sometimes at least the early emotions can be in a relationship with God. Emotions can't be fabricated no matter how hard we try. We can't just repeat an experience over and over again. It doesn't always work that way. So it's impossible to maintain a sense of closeness to God at all times. So it makes no sense for us to judge the quality of our relationship with God based on our feelings. Just like human relationships, a relationship with God will mature and change over time. Sometimes what happens, and you've seen this perhaps in a dating relationship or certainly in marriage, where the intense emotions of the early months and years may fade, and yet something deeper and more profound replaces it. One of the reasons why I think we get confused about this is the way that we understand in our culture the word love. So earlier in announcements, Amy mentioned our purpose statement, love God and love others. And it's based on a story where a man came to Jesus and asked, what's the most important of the commandments? And Jesus said to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's the love God part. And then he said to love your neighbor as yourself. In fact, we last week talked about that story that Jesus told to explain that. So we have shortened this to love God, love others. And it's four powerful words that invite us into a relationship with God personally follow him wholeheartedly, and then to serve him sacrificially. Love God and love others. But what can throw us when we look at even a statement like this is the word love, because often we equate love with emotion. So implicitly, you think that the quality of our relationships are based on emotions. But the problem is, emotions come and go. That's not what God is asking us. When he says to love God, he's not telling us to feel really great feelings about God. He's telling us to put God at the center of our lives. And when he says to love others, he's not saying again that we have to have feelings. Instead, we need to serve others, even if we don't feel anything. 
Love here is putting God first and others first. It's not warm fuzzies or butterflies in the stomach. It's something much deeper. What's interesting is that some people have lots of highs and others only have a few. And that's okay. Our experiences are often different. In fact, as someone on our staff says, God often honors our personalities. But we need to remember that our feelings are not a very good barometer of whether God is close or not. In fact, one of the last promises that Jesus gave while on earth in Matthew 28 was, I will be with you to the very end of the age. He was promising that he would be with those who follow him. So we need to understand that feelings um, are great, but they don't always give us reliable information about God. There are times when we need to trust God whether we feel it or not. Trust him when we feel full of faith and when we feel full of doubt. Trust him when we have answers to our questions and when the answers seem murky. Now, I'm not saying here to throw out your brain. I'm not saying just believe. I believe that Christian faith offers the best, most comprehensive explanation of human reality that we have. But it's also true that faith is a necessary component of our relationship with God. In fact, Jesus was once asked, how much faith is really necessary? Now, in this case, he was talking about in order to do something great. And Jesus' answer to the question was, faith is small as a mustard seed. And sometimes people try to define how much faith you actually need by, you know, how much is in a mustard seed. And Jesus' point is actually any amount of faith is enough. It doesn't, you don't have to have huge amounts of faith. Faith is not the same thing as certainty. It isn't the lack of doubt or an absence of questions. It's learning to walk by faith, not by sight. It's walking by faith sometimes means just taking the next step, whether we can feel God and see him or sense him or not. Now, as I say all of this, I can say that there are exceptions. Just because feeling down isn't a sign that God is there, feeling good is also not a sign he's there either. Our feelings can fool us in both directions. So we need to learn to trust the facts, not our feelings. And yet, it's not a bad idea to pay attention to our feelings, even if we always have to do so by checking the facts. So let me just say that the truth in this whole sequence here is trust the facts, not feelings. So let me give you an important instance when feelings may be important to attend to, although we need to compare them to facts. And that is when the facts suggest that you yourself may actually be further from God than you are not, than you should be. Feelings are no feelings. So again, you may feel close to God, or you may feel like you're feeling fairly good, but if the evidence is that you are actually wandering from God, pay attention to those facts. Because the truth is, is that while God promises to be with us, we can wander from God. If we're living lives that we know are inconsistent with, what, with the way of life laid out for us in the Bible, then we need to be concerned. If we're allowing our hearts to be consumed by anger or bitterness, again, be concerned. If you see that you're being overwhelmed and giving in to greed or lust or envy or pride, again, be concerned. Then we need to do something to reconnect with God. How? Well, what the Bible tells us is first repent. It's not a popular idea, but the idea is that what we need to do is to say, God, I'm sorry. I am sorry for the way that I have wandered from you. And then turn and head in the opposite direction. That's a little bit of a metaphor, but the idea is that repentance involves turning from whatever we're going toward, and that might be sin, and rather turn around and walk back toward God. But again, at the other end of the continuum, we need to be careful about reading too much into our feelings because the truth is that there can be and often are times in which we feel very far from God. St. John of the Cross is the one who first coined the phrase, the dark night of the soul. 
He was describing times of spiritual dryness. And in Catholic thought, John of the Cross's writings came to describe a spiritual crisis that many believed was on the way toward union with God. He and others after him tried in one sense to normalize the experience of feeling distant from God, saying that sometimes this happens. Maybe it happens in every Christian's life at one point or another. And they even suggested that these are times that can do us much spiritual good. And that's been my experience and the experience of many that I have talked to, that often God does his best work in the darkest of times. God does his best work for us, in us, in those dry times. In C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters, he lays out an interesting scenario. And first I need to explain the way the book is constructed. It is a series of letters from a senior a demon to a junior tempter. So Screwtape is the senior guy and Wormwood is the, the, uh, the junior tempter. By the way, if it's a book I would highly recommend. It's very interesting and engaging and very practical. But in this, Wormwood is responsible for undermining the life, the spiritual life of a man who becomes a Christian. So Screwtape is writing him, encouraging different ways that he can tempt him. And in one of the chapters, Wormwood is very proud. He's written back to Screwtape and told him how he has got this Christian feeling like God is very distant. It's a dry time. But Screwtape, in his return letter, warns him not to be so smug. He tells Wormwood that life is naturally a series of peaks and valleys, that God can use both. In fact, he says almost with horror that God does his best work in the most difficult of times. And then he says this to Wormwood. He says, our cause, and by the way, this is the demon's cause, is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemies, that's God's will, looks around upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. A universe from which every trace of him, that's God, seems to have vanished and asks why he's been forsaken and still obeys. I mentioned at the beginning my disappointing last summer at that camp that I went to, six straight summers of highs, and then nothing. And what I would later understand is that what I was experiencing was normal. In fact, in the decades since, I've had some highs, but there haven't been a lot of them. And that's okay. There are times when I felt close to God and other times when I felt far. And there have been times when I have drifted, when I've had to look at the facts and say, you know what, I need to make some changes I need to confess whatever it is I'm, I'm involved in, and I need to reconnect with God in some significant ways. And sometimes those have involved feelings and sometimes not. But I've learned, not perfectly, but I've learned that whether I feel close to God or not, the task before me is always the same, to still obey. There's a subcurrent of thought in Christian circles that values the spectacular, the dramatic stories of God taking us to the mountaintop, and those do happen. And when they do, we thank God, but they're not to be the foundation of our faith. About 10 years ago, a book was released that shocked many in the Christian world. It contained the private letters of a woman that many deeply admired. Early in her life, she had committed herself to Jesus. She said, I will do anything, go anywhere, whatever you want me to do, God, I will do it. And she did. From that point on, she committed herself to serve the poorest of the poor and did so uh, until her death many years later. Throughout her lifetime, she was admired, and even those who were closest to her, to her were unaware of what these letters that were published 10 years ago would later reveal. It was in these letters to two different spiritual advisors that she described how not long after her remarkable vow, 
she lost the close sense of God being near to her. Something that she had had for many years prior to that, something that had driven her along spiritually, was suddenly gone. Instead, it was replaced by spiritual darkness. It was something that lasted, as far as anyone can tell, until the end of her life. One of the two that she shared her feelings with wrote wisely back this. The sure sign of God's hidden presence in this darkness is the thirst you have for God. No one can long for God unless God is present in his or her heart. In other words, he was telling this woman that the fact that you grieve this loss of God's presence, the fact that you are concerned about it, is sign both that God is near and that you love him. With that advisor's help, she concluded that her own struggles were a way for her to identify more clearly and more deeply and more personally with the struggles of the people that she was ministering to. And during all those decades of spiritual darkness, one thing never wavered, and that was her belief in God and her willingness and commitment to obey. Some of you have already guessed who this dear woman is, and her name is Mother Teresa. I'm convinced that God is a personal God. I believe that he is loving, and I believe that he is near to each one of you. And I'm convinced that if Jesus Christ is at the center of life, you will have peace, meaning, purpose, guidance, strength to face whatever difficulties you may face, and hope for eternity that you do not have. But that doesn't mean that you won't go through periods and times of spiritual dryness and darkness. And yet, I believe that we can trust Jesus to take care of us. We can obey knowing that our lives depend not on our feelings, but on the reality that God is the creator and sustainer not only of the world, but also of each one of our lives. Let's pray. Father, this myth is one that can confuse us because sometimes you do feel incredibly close to us. We feel your presence and it drives us forward and encourages us. Sometimes, even in the times when we may be facing difficulty, you feel most close to us. But there are other times when you feel very distant, when we feel that we're alone, when we don't know or sense or feel you in our world. And yet, Father, we want to know and put our trust in the fact that you, through your son Jesus, have promised that you will always be with us, even to the end of the age. We pray, Father, that we would know, that we would trust, that we would put our hope in you, even when we don't feel it and that we would still obey. We pray this in the name of Jesus, amen.